a different style of video for you today, the deepest of deep dives into plug-in hybrid vehicle technology. It's the full uncut interview I did with a dude named Tim Clark, the engineer who lives and breathes this stuff at Mitsubishi Motors Australia. So if you've ever wondered about the plug-in hybrid technical details, this is the video for you. You know, one of the great privileges of journalism is access, right? Access to people and things that ordinary punters with real jobs and responsibilities don't get. And today, I want to basically give you a front row seat to access of that nature. The reason I was there in the first place. At the end of last month, I brought you this report on the Mitsubishi Outlander plug-in hybrid, where I took it to the Flinders Ranges in Outback South Oz. Mitsubishi wanted to prove a point about its family adventuring friendliness after I had said in an earlier report that their marketing was way off target because a vehicle is simply not, quote, rugged ready if it lacks a spare tyre. The Outlander plug-in hybrid is an impressive city car in my view, but they threw the spare tyre under the bus in R&D to make space for the rear electric motor in the plug-in, okay? And to me, this does nothing but hurt its extra urban suitability. Ultimately, I think Mitsubishi and I reached a compromise, like we got into the demilitarized zone on this issue. On my world, it still remains crazy to take a vehicle into the outback without a spare tire. With the Outlander plug-in, you have to accessorize in the aftermarket industry if you want to fit a spare, but you can certainly do it. And if you do, it is surprisingly capable on semi-rugged trails. It's never going to be a Ford Ranger Raptor, obviously. But you can drive it in places where less capable SUVs simply won't proceed. And it's pretty interesting using electric drive with the super all-wheel control system, which does some very impressive torque vectoring to maintain forward progress when you get two wheels off the deck, which happened quite a lot in the Flinders. Anyway, there's a link up there if you want to watch that earlier package on the Outlander plug-in. This video is brought to you by Olight. Olight makes excellent torches, and right now that means excellent Christmas presents, and the Olight Christmas sale fortuitously is on until Saturday the 16th with significant savings essentially across the range. I'll put full details in the description. So if I had a torch-sized hole in my life, I would want one of the following three Olights wrapped under my Christmas tree. In an ideal world, together with the two cheerleaders' mommies who wrapped it. My favourite EDC torch is the Warrior Mini. This is version 3 of the Warrior Mini. It's a pocket-friendly 1,750 lumen powerhouse. It's in my pocket every day and under 100 bucks right now. Normally sells for 130-ish. It's great for personal security, toughness and overall practicality. A little something for the car now. The Swivel, the base model of Swivel is under 40 bucks right now. It's a work light and a torch with a magnetic base that's also a carabiner and it swivels. 
go figure. There's a bigger Swivel Pro for just over 70 bucks and a larger, again, Swivel Pro Max that's just under 100 bucks right now. Finally, the Marauder Mini. This has search and adventuring written all over it, this torch. There's a crazy bright centre LED that is a 600 metre searchlight. First time I took this thing out at night, it literally blew my mind. It is that powerful. And then you just flick a toggle switch and it's a floodlight, thanks to the ring of LEDs on the periphery. It's about 195 bucks on sale now, which is 105 bucks off. Olights are really well made and the packaging is awesome, dude. So it'll look like you spent more than you did for that special someone this Christmas. If you're scratching around for a present for someone you care about, why not give them something they'll carry and use every day? Links in the description. And thanks, Olight. I appreciate all the support you give this channel. Tim Clark is Yoda. Plug-in hybrid powertrain Yoda for Mitsubishi Motors Australia. Knowing about this stuff is what he does. It's all he does. So if you've ever wondered about series and parallel modes and whether the combustion engine ever actually drives the wheels like at all, jump on board, dude. We're going to drive around the Flinders Ranges right now and find out. There's really three key powertrain modes that this, this, this system can work in. One is obviously EV mode and with the, the battery size we've got in this vehicle, it's a 20 kilowatt hour battery that gives you uh, a pretty decent short range EV capability. Which must be 70 k's, 80 k's, something like that. That's right, yeah. So the, the official test under NEDC cycle is 84 kilometres, but in real world driving you probably get between 65, 75 kilometres depending on your driving conditions. And, yeah, and so, so just because I think a lot of people are still hazy on battery size, right? Yeah. A power tool battery, like a 6 amp hour, 18 volt power tool battery is about 100 watt hours. Yeah. So this would be like 200 of them. Yeah. That's a big battery. You wouldn't lift it off the ground on your own, would you? No, it's probably about 150, 160 kilograms worth of battery. Decent deadlift. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so it is quite a beefy system, and the motor to match, like the electric motor powering the wheels, we're not just talking about a bit of an assist here, right? Yeah. There's two motors, like one at each end, right? Yeah. Uh, so these are serious electric motors as well. It's not just it's not just combustion doing most of the work and electricity helping us a bit as it is in a hybrid that you can't plug in. That's correct, yeah. So battery supplies a portion of that and the internal combustion engine motor provides a boost to give us a maximum power output at, at both axles on the vehicle, so combined power output of 185 kilowatts. Okay, so the other thing that does my head in from time to time is that you dudes who specialise in this stuff, you kind of live the, the PHEV lifestyle and you, you get all of that, but for those of us who only stick our toe in the water occasionally and you start talking about, well, we're in series mode and now we're in parallel mode, talk to me about what the hell that really is. Yeah, so series mode, it's a, a combination of powertrain elements in series. So we have uh, at the top of that the internal combustion engine, which is only acting as a, a generator to charge a battery. 
which is in the middle, and then the battery supplies power to the front and rear motors. So that's series configuration. Does the generator also empower the wheels directly if required? In parallel right. hybrid okay. mode? So we'll get to that. Yeah. Yep, yep. So in series hybrid mode, in the Outlander and Eclipse Cross plug-in hybrid, that's if, if your battery uh, state of charge gets to the point where it can no longer support pure battery electric driving, series hybrid mode will activate automatically. Yeah. And typically that happens when you get to around 15% uh, state of charge. So there's a reserve kept within the battery to keep all systems operating. So there's about 15% left when that series mode um, kicks in. And the unique thing with the Outlander plug-in hybrid is that um, at every speed below 70 kilometers per hour, only the electric motors can drive the wheels, either in battery electric mode or series hybrid mode. Right, so you're driving around town under 70, up to 70, whatever. It's only the electric motors moving you forward. Yep, so from standstill to 70, it's only electric motors that can provide propulsion for the vehicle. Right, so that could be in EV mode with just battery to motors, but it could also be with the uh, combustion powertrain at the top of the tree sort of thing. Yeah, in the series hybrid mode, that's right. Yeah. Okay, so then parallel mode is open road driving, presumably. Right. Yeah, so parallel mode is not available below 70 kilometres per hour because of the single speed transaxle that connects all of these power systems together in, in the Outlander. Um, so the single speed transaxle has only one fixed gear um, and if you think about um, a manual car with a, a higher ratio like a fourth or fifth gear yeah. you can't take off from standstill in that you'll bog down and you'll stall the engine. Sure. This car is set up so that only at high speeds will the the internal combustion engine power the front wheels directly through that single speed transaxle. And the reason for that is because the electric powertrain is much more efficient at lower speeds than the internal combustion engine So and opposite at higher speeds. So what is the mode of engagement for the combustion engine when it's driving the transaxle? How does it engage? Like, is it a clutch thing? It's or tor a... torque, yeah, a, sorry, there's a um, hydraulic clutch that engages. Automatically. Um, that engages automatically, usually based on torque demand, which is through pedal application. So yeah, light pedal application, it might just cruise along as a series hybrid at high speeds. And if you want to apply more, engage more torque for overtaking, for example, then it will provide direct uh, drive to the, the front axle only. Yeah. Um, and then in, in the Outlander and the Eclipse Cross case, the, the rear axle is electric driven only. So that, that parallel hybrid mode is, um, I guess, in two senses, providing parallel drive because um, it's providing... Uh, direct drive to the front axle yeah. and electric drive to the rear axle, but also in parallel, whatever energy that's generated by the engine that isn't used for the front wheels, it's also harvesting to um, store in the battery for later use. The control architecture for this system, I wouldn't want to try jumping over it. Like, it's pretty complex. Yeah, it is, yeah. And but we're not doing anything. Like, it's just, it's just doing its thing. Yeah, you know, in the background, it's it wasn't just one guy with a laptop who wrote the control architecture for this. This is a big team of people yeah. doing a lot of iterative R and D, right? Yeah, and Mitsubishi has you know, ten years of knowledge in PHEV space and how to apply that logic. Um, 
and, and the new Outlander, you can the refinement is just exceptional compared to the first gen plug-in hybrid. Well, that's the other thing, right? You've got um, a lot of data about uh, must be approaching at least middle age for some of those batteries too, right? That have been in service for some time. Yeah, yeah. So the original Outlander plug-in hybrid was launched in Australia in twenty late twenty thirteen, early twenty fourteen. So we're hitting the ten year mark for a lot of those early delivered cars. Yeah. Which um, does result in kind of end of life battery scenarios where the, the battery has lost capacity over time, which is a, a natural phenomenon with lithium ion chemistries. They Yeah, we've they, all had laptops that do that. And, and phones, yeah. Power yeah. tools and you know exactly, yeah. the batteries are great and then they're not. But um, how much capacity are we talking about losing in ten years? In ten years, it, it, it all depends on the how the battery is used over time, and there's there's three key things that will impact your level of degradation. So, first is number of cycles, which is what you know we we can't control as a, an OEM. Yeah, and and also how hard you, you cycle that battery through those through those different um, use use cases. Um, the second is um, temperature. So high temperatures and low temperatures will impact the battery capacity over time. And we have battery um, temperature management systems to help control that. It's got a cooling system, right? Yeah. 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 Sorry, yeah, and, the, and the third? And the third is um, the over or under charging of the battery. So if you overcharge it, that can cause um, damage to the battery. Okay, and so similarly with undercharging, and that's... So how do you overcharge a battery? Well, you can't in a vehicle like this. The, the battery management system will prevent that from happening, so it's, yeah. it's not really uh, possible to, to do that. And undercharging, under this thing will kick in and just charge itself when it gets to Yeah, that's to right. Undercharging, uh, the engine will, will kick in and run the generator to avoid getting severely undercharged. Right, so you just mean in general in terms of battery longevity, they're the factors, but yeah. that third one is essentially negated by systematic protection. Correct, yeah. Right, okay. So charging at home if you own I've always thought that if you own a plug-in hybrid you're kind of missing the point if you don't plug in you can you can get away with never plugging in like it'll work but you've got this big battery you're not going to fill it up with regenerative brakes and it's kind of it seems redundant to me to get the combustion engine to charge the battery when you've got um, a charger at home yeah so the most inefficient way to use a plug-in hybrid is to not plug it in. Yeah. Um, if you, the best way to use a plug-in hybrid is plugging it in every day and driving it within or just over the, the battery electric range. So we're talking, you know, if your daily commute is between sort of anywhere up to 70, 80 kilometres, then plug-in hybrid is a good solution for you. Yeah. Um, particularly if you also want to drive long distances occasionally because that's where the, the plug-in hybrid really shines as either a short-range battery electric vehicle um, or a long-range hybrid electric vehicle. Yeah, well, you don't have to worry about the military-level special ops planning to get to the charges within the range as you would with a pure battery. Either, right? That's right, that, that, yeah. that can be quite the white-knuckle experience and it can be soul-destroying if you turn up at a charger in the middle of <laughs> freaking nowhere and all you see is a line of EVs waiting. Yes, that could be somewhat disappointing. Yeah, so we're um, in the plug-in hybrid. You're immune to all those infrastructure yeah. immaturities or reliability issues that 
so becoming a big problem now with the, the increase in EVs on the road. Yeah. There's a, a lot more stress on that infrastructure. Yeah, well, inv invariably, because the system's evolving so rapidly, we're going to end up with choke points where, yeah. you know, and unfortunately, early adopters are going to be the victims of those choke points. But yeah. if, if I'm at home and I want to charge up, obviously, the car comes with a charger that fits in a standard GPO. That's right. But if I've got a wall box, I could use that as well, right? Like a, uh, a single phase AC wall box. Correct. Yeah. So how does how quickly does the battery charge up? We're talking 20 kilowatt hours-ish of energy. So um, how fast? How, what's the maximum charge rate? So maximum charge rate via AC charging um, is limited by the onboard charger, which is about 15 amps. That gives you about three and a half, three point six kilowatts maximum. Yeah, it's still a fairly decent circuit to run out of your uh, out of your uh, box on the side of the house. Yeah, right. yeah, and you know, there's a couple of other points as to why that um, that limit is is suitable for this vehicle. One is we we talked before about battery um, degradation through the rate and number of cycles and the rate you charge and discharge yeah, it. So yeah, yeah. it gives you a bit of um, inbuilt protection there. Thermal management too, right? Yeah, and thermal management, that's right, because yeah. as you charge, the faster you charge, the more heat build up in, in the pack. Um, and and the second is the size of the battery. I mean, you don't need super fast charging to charge, you know, let's, let's say 15 kilowatt hours because we keep that kind of reserve in the battery. Um, and, and if you're doing it daily as well, overnight, or, you know, a quick top up during the day using, using your solar um, with a 3.6 kilowatt or 15 amp charge rate, you can charge it from zero on the battery gauge to 100% in about six, six and a half hours. Yeah, right. So even if you're not a complete convert to the whole photovoltaic array and all of that thing, maybe you're an employee and you're, you're not ever at home at a time when your um, solar array is actually receiving any photons because it's mm. night time and you know you could hypothetically plug it in at 10 o'clock at night and be good to go in the morning and you'd be yeah, essentially well, doing arbitrage. even later than that yeah plug it in after midnight using hopefully a, a cheaper tariff yeah and um, yeah ready to go in the morning with 100% battery capacity for your, your daily commute and the charging is uh, all weather so mm -hmm. if, if you plug it in and it rains and the charging the front bit of the car like you, where you plug it in is wet yeah you can charge outside in the rain right no problem the um, the charging equipment supplied with the vehicle is is rated for outdoor use I think the only part of that we can't control is where you plug it in so you yeah. want to make sure that where you plug and get into the grid it's uh, okay for for wet and outdoor use. So talk to me about the drive system now because we're coming up right now on this fairly severely articulated little creek crossing that, and the wheels are going to be up and down and all that stuff and you've got this super all-wheel control system which is working its tits off right now incidentally briefly. Um, how does that integrate with all of this electric tech? So, so this is super all-wheel control, but the motive power is electric. So correct, yeah. So we're 100% electric at the moment. Um, silent drive, and the beauty of this electric powertrain in this sort of driving condition is you've got 100% torque from standstill. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of combustion. Yeah, 
and it, it really kind of simulates what you would get with a low range transfer case in a proper four wheel drive, which is trying to give you a lot more torque with a much less wheel speed. Yeah, but you need a lot of components to do that, right? Yeah. Like you need an extra gearbox. That's right. For start, and a clutch or torque converter or whatever. Well, yeah, it's, it's, it's a balancing act because we've got a battery to manage yeah, this yeah. car as well. But and, and the other thing with this is, you know, we've got the 100% torque at, at zero and at very low speed, but we've also got strong regen braking for downhill applications. So effectively, you can drive the car off the, the throttle just by modulating the accelerator which is really kind of useful in this kind of really low speed crawling over a rock kind of driving conditions. Yeah. Now, uh, how are you finding it? It's, it's like, it's a triumph of no effort. Exactly. I don't need it? any skill to do this. We're just following the track to, you know, yeah. like that. And that is, that's probably the biggest compliment I could pay the engineers who thought this all up. Because if you have to work hard, that's kind of a fail. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So that's, pretty clever in my book the, the thing that I find that, that confronts me with this car is that you don't need to you don't need to understand too much about it to use it right but if you want to there's a kind of a deep dive isn't there there's there's lots of screens and there's lots of modes and there's several switches here there's save mode and there's charge mode and there's one pedal mode and there's EV mode and it it seems to me that this level of complexity if you don't want to just let the car do it all or you want to configure it to suit your own preferences or the circumstances that you're driving in. It seems to me like educating customers about this stuff could be a real challenge. It is and we've found that and we've had 10 years to try to educate people about how plug-in hybrid systems can work and I would say that probably haven't done as good a job as we would have liked to with that but what we're finding now especially is that with electrification becoming much more mainstream a lot of people are educating themselves around how the plug-in hybrid system works and that's helping us with the, the appeal of this product as well we've never seen such demand with plug-in hybrid as we have right now in Australia well to me it seems like if you buy I don't know for example one of Australia's most popular cars like a a Ranger or a Hilux and you give it the full off-road pimp it might cope a little easier we might be able to drive a little faster in these conditions but it's gonna be comparatively horrible to drive in the city inevitably because you're optimizing it for a different kind of performance right yeah and then take the average punter he's gonna drive for I don't know 90 something percent of his ownership of the vehicle is going to be in the city in a car that's optimised for this. Whereas, you know, if you didn't want to join the club, and I, I appreciate that there is a, a lifestyle element to that the whole off-roading thing, but if you just want to take the family adventuring, wouldn't you want to do it in a car that was optimised for 90-something percent of the driving that it actually does, and but copes with something like this when, when yeah. you're quiet? I think... Uh you hear quite often PHEVs mentioned as the best of both worlds and you know it can and it can't be it can be the worst of both worlds depending on how you want to use it but I think when you look at the versatility and the capability of this package in, in the Outlander especially it, it, it can do so much 
just as it is. And, well, it, and, and it is perfect. You know, it's a great family car in the city for daily commuting. It's a great family car for long distance commuting and traveling. And now we're discovering also how good it is in, a, in an off-road rock crawling scenario, which is kind of not what you'd expect, but the capabilities there. So. Was, was this a bit of a revolution, uh, revelation for you, this discovery of its capability like that? And how long ago did you make it? Yeah, it was. Uh, and frankly speaking, we, we only realised how capable the PHEV system was in off-road use when this new model Outlander was launched about 18 months, two years ago. Must have been a bit of a vindication when Sean drove one over the Simpson Desert in that muddy sort of terrain and all that stuff too. Yeah, there was a lot of doubters within the business that he wouldn't make it across, but <laughs> as he as he proved, as he wanted to prove to himself, and that was the point of his exercise, he wanted to prove to himself that it was capable and he made it across the Simpson Desert in uh, in a standard car with you know eighteen inch wheels and, yeah, like- and road tires. So you and I, we both have a few things in common, like we're both engineers and we've both worked a lot in roles that are either associated with or inside the car industry, and therefore done quite a lot of four-wheel driving. I reckon the average person who was a complete newbie at this would be pretty much shitting themselves for some of this driving. Like You don't realise how confronting taking a car into these uh, kinds of conditions, creek crossings like this and where there's big things that you've got to get over that are completely unlike the driving that you do day to day. Yeah, it's not, uh, not a comfort zone for <laughs> people you, who haven't done it before. Yeah, if you're a full tilt four-wheel driver, this is kind of pretty moderate stuff. But for your average mum and dad taking the kids somewhere and saying, hey, put that bloody iPad down, dude, and have a look out the window, this is different. Um, this would be out there. Yeah. Good way, good way to get the kids off the iPad, maybe. It'd be pretty hard to uh, look at it while you're wobbling around on a track like this. Yeah, they might, you might need the sick bag. But um, engagement with reality is pretty important for kids. This might be one way to do it. But it could be pretty exciting for uh, mum and dad in the front, too. I don't know. More people should do this kind of stuff. Like, we live in a, we live in a country that's kind of gagging for it. And I think there's a widespread notion that you have to have a freaking jacked up ute, you know, or something to do this kind of driving. And I really don't think it's the case. Well, creepers in what we're doing right now, isn't it? You're like, this car's on 20-inch wheels. Yeah. It's hardly, the the wheel and tyre package is not optimised for this driving. Like, it's it's just not. But it's it's doing it. Yeah, you know, there's a risk assessment there that you need to take into consideration before you drive along a road like this and 20 inch wheels might yeah but how long did it take you to figure out the the package of extra stuff that we're carrying for this particular exercise uh not very long you know an hour to a couple hours i mean finding all the bits is is the hard bit but writing the list is very easy okay so packaging it up was a bit of a challenge yeah yeah Interesting to see the jerry can on the roof rack. I think that's an exceptionally good choice for where to put it. Just talk me through the thought process for that. Yeah, anyone who used a jerry can and filled it up knows that wherever you put it, you can smell it. So having it inside the cabin was not going to be the preferred place to have it. Dude, the flash point of petrol is minus 43 degrees C. 
it's going to form an explosive vapor mix at every temperature above that. And <laughs> inside the cabin, just sorry. No, Don't do that. <laughs> Bad idea. So we've got two spare tyres in each car. Obviously in standard trim this car does not come with one and you can't really quote unquote fit one. Correct. But we've, so you've put cargo barrier in to compartmentalise the cargo space and also the spare tyre in the cargo bay is strapped down. Yeah. Right? So that's all pretty smart. How easy is it lifting that wheel and tyre onto the roof rack? It's not, per, it's not easy. Two-person lift? Well, you could do it with one, but you'd want uh, to do it with two in an ideal case, yeah. yeah. It's not, not easy to get up and, uh, and get up there. I have to climb up on the roof to, to strap it down. It strikes me that there's a few things that you might overlook if you're equipping your own plug-in for this kind of adventure. One of them would be the jack and the wheel brace, which also doesn't exist in the standard car. Correct. Yeah, I think in, the, in any off-road travelling scenario, um, you'd want to make sure you've got a, a jack that's capable of getting a wheel up off the ground on a very uneven, non-flat surface. Um, I'm not sure most OEM jacks that come with vehicles would be capable of that. Um, no, I think they're uh, only there for the, the classic textbook roadside repair, aren't they? Yeah, that, that's our assessment as well. So you'd want to find a jack that was capable of uh, getting you up off the ground. Well, they've only got on a, a freaking base plate about this big too, yeah. haven't they? So in off-road terms. So despite, yeah, the absence of a jack, you'd, if, if, even if we had a jack, you'd still want to supplement that with something more capable in a scenario like this, for sure. Yeah. Big fan of the tyre plug kit, mm. right? Because you don't even have to take the tyre off. If it's the right sort of Goldilocks puncture. The Goldilocks puncture, yeah. Gotta love a Goldilocks uh, puncture. Cause, I've you never know. had to um, use the t puncture repair kit on a PHEV, so it'll be an interesting uh, exercise to, to try that. Yeah. Have you used the plug kit at all, ever? I have, yeah. Yeah. It's not, a, not, it's not, a pretty not cool a, concept. I've not used it in a... Um, on-road scenario though, I've used it, I, I worked in a, a tyre workshop for eight years while I was at uni, so I've done oh, lots right. of punch repairs with plugs. So. I was going to say. But the plugs you'd be using would be, uh, oh that would have been a while ago now, because you're, you're not an old fart like me, but you can see it coming. <laughs> right. I've used both types, the external push-through and then the yeah. pull-through from the inside. Well, the, the, external, the, the external push-through ones used to be permanent repairs. Yeah, they, that's, they were. You, you turned up and they just, there, yeah, your tyre's fixed, mate. Yep. You know? But now they're classed only as temporary repairs, as I understand them anyway. Yeah. I think the kit with the plug-in hybrid is not so much a plug, but it's a can of goop. Yeah, it's the goop and the compressor. Yeah. I appreciate why this car doesn't have a spare tyre because you've got to fit a 150 kilo battery somewhere and not everything in a car can be sacrificed to that objective. Right? Yeah. So something's got to go and I get it. But it can bite you in the ass, you know, as a, as a customer because I was taking my father to the hospital where in the top of this car park, it's like five storeys high or something, and... I notice an EV and it's like canted over diagonally and there's a woman in it with her ageing father and she's taken her ageing father to hospital for Christ knows what confronting treatment as well so the uh, she'd biffed the gutter mm. and ripped a hole in the sidewall 
And I went down this track because I, I tried to help her in as much as I had a look at the puncture and there's a big hole in the sidewall, so a can of goop and compressor, not that helpful. Yeah. Um, and it struck me then that you wouldn't get a tow truck into the car park. You're going to have to drive the car out to mm. get it towed, to get it fixed for the roadside assist, right? And uh, that could actually ruin the rim, I thought. Because yeah, there's some pretty tight turns there. Yeah. With a flat tire. Yeah. So it might not be a bad idea, you know, if you if you're not utilising the cargo bay fully, it might not be a bad idea to have a cargo barrier and a spare tire strapped down. I'd agree with that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, obviously that's a personal decision and you guys are you basically got your head in a vice when you're talking about uh, retrofitting something of that nature because you'd have a whole bunch of compliance stuff that you would have to do to make that a thing like there'd be some crash test and there'd be other standards that had to be met and it would be completely infeasible to do yeah if we're uh, recommending a application as a spare tire then we need to have a specific place to locate and secure that and that requires you know, like a 20, 20 G sled test yeah. to make sure that it's not going to become a, a, a risk to the passengers if there was a an unforeseen incident. Um, Personally, though, I'm quite comfortable driving with a spare tyre strapped down in the back and a cargo barrier. Like, it's not going anywhere. Yeah, it just becomes payload of the vehicle, really, isn't it? Yeah. Like a, a suitcase if you're travelling somewhere. Oh, there are plenty of things that I wouldn't want hitting me in the back of the head at 60 k's an hour. Case of wine. You know. Yeah, agree. Toolbox. A toolbox? Definitely no. Yeah, with the battery um, packaging in this vehicle, it's um, in between the, the front and rear axles to give us a bit better weight distribution across the car. And the reason we can't package that spare tyre in the back still is because there's a lot of... Um, firstly, there's a, the rear electric motor powering the rear axle, but also some high-voltage electronics in there that link the charging system to the battery inverters and rectifiers you just said the magic word here right so we're high voltage okay we're talking about i guess 350 400 volt system yeah yep. so you could you could weld with it it's pretty powerful well, this is just interesting i might actually have to think here actually stop and just give it a light throttle and let it spin the wheels that are up in the air mm -hmm. And usually what it will do is it will work out which wheels are spinning and then it will just give you the power to the axle that needs it. Just thinking, putting brakes on. We're nearly there, but I no. think we're just going to have to choose another line. Yeah, I think the, the wider line to the left here might get you up and over. Oh, I don't think we have to call a rescue helicopter yet. <laughs> Should we use the camera for picking lines as well in these? Give it a bit of welly here. I must have to think there. Now, the interesting challenge when the nose is seemingly pointed up in the sky is actually figuring out where the road goes next, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so, back to what we were talking about. 400 volt system. This has got to be a real challenge for uh, dealerships and other servicing type professionals because 
working on 400 volts in the domestic space, you need a special qualification. It's like, it's not trivial. Mm. Yeah, we have uh, high voltage training for all of our dealerships that um, are qualified to service PHEVs and, and we're rolling out that across every dealership nationwide, across 200 sites. People underestimate because they use battery powered stuff all the time. I mean, this is a hypothesis, right? People use phones, power tools, blah, 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 all the time. They're battery powered, their laptops are battery powered, and then they think a car is the same thing, but it's actually a shitload of energy. Mm. Like it's heaps. And it worries me in part what theatrics backyarders might get up to in the future. Because inevitably cars age, people are going to work on them at home. Yeah, yeah, that's a risk. I think uh, there's maybe some some room for much more education in that space. I think, you know, already from time to time we see people using batteries out of electric vehicles to connect to their home. Um, it's a, a space where you'd want to be a, a qualified electrician as a minimum. If not an electrical engineer to, to manage, well, you might the have risks to spec your home too. Well, your home might not be compatible. It might be the weakest link. Exactly. Like, and the compliance for all of that—it's a nice idea, but until there's regulatory compliance, and you'd have to get three or four different agencies talking to each other and signing yeah. off on standardisation, and it could be a grim reality of upgrade cost. I think for owners who want to do that stuff. Yeah, and then I think the other thing that is maybe not spoken about as much is the insurance risk. And, uh, insurance companies are now becoming very conscious of uh, risks involved with high voltage battery systems. Yeah, but I don't see Mitsubishi in the news too often for that. I also don't get too many complaints. Like, I used to get heaps of complaints about, uh, for example, and I don't want you to comment on that because that would be a breach of the code of ethics, but I used to get heaps of complaints about um, degradation in Nissan Leafs, for example, but I don't get that level of, uh, I don't get any complaints about the batteries in these things. I'm sure you've had a few, but, you know. Yeah, I think it depends on the expectation of the user, what's an acceptable level of degradation for the type of use that they are using the vehicle for. Um, we have in the Outlander plug-in hybrid a, a drive battery um, customer care program that guarantees that over eight years or 160,000 kilometres worth of use for the vehicle, the battery capacity um, won't go below 66% state yeah. of health. If it does, then uh, the battery will be replaced. Okay, so in eight years' time, worst case scenario, 66% is still uh, about... 50Ks of range. Ish. Ish. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, if the battery does reach its minimum state of charge, like we've discussed, the, the hybrid systems take over, so you're not stuck anywhere unless you're running the petrol and battery. Yeah, and those batteries, there's, they could hypothetically be repurposed anyway for storage because uh, if you get a battery that drops to 50%, it's still a 10 kilowatt hour battery. It's still like 100 yeah. power tools. To power tool batteries sitting there waiting to go. Oh, you've got a blackout, and I'll just power your house for you know the next 24 hours. Absolutely, yeah. Now, repurposing is uh, at front of mind for Mitsubishi. We're looking at opportunities to repurpose 
cells from those original Outlanders we spoke about before that are starting to reach kind of a, a 10 year point yeah. in their life where the battery's um, not, not so um, great for, for range and, and the vehicle's reaching their end of, of life in any case as well. So being retired from service, recover those batteries, repurpose them as typically a, a stationary energy storage system. Well, Tim, I now know more about plug-in hybrids, not as much as you, obviously, but more than I did when we started this drive, and hopefully it's been you know, entertaining and informative for anyone watching down the track. It's just somehow disappoints me that when modern technology is integrated well, there's kind of less for you to do to get on top of the process, but, but that's the best backhanded compliment I could give someone sitting in that seat, mate. So I'm... I'm just impressed by the way this functions pretty seamlessly in the background. And some of those climbs, like that one we just did where we were half up and had, had two cracks at it. So, look, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thanks for the comment.